Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street every day, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences and accomplishments are, or how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. I must confess that over the last several years, doubts have been spilling into my thinking about whether humanity will avert clearly apparent existential threats such as climate change, food shortages, and pandemics. The root cause seems equally apparent. There's a me-first tribalism, fear that an established way of life could disappear if the rising waters of change actually do, as the old expression goes, lift all boats. There's a fixation on winning at all costs, a zero-sum contest which requires not just losers, but losers absorbing a crushing defeat. Absent in the debate is accountability for the general well-being, not just of our countrymen, but also those with whom we share life on earth, those impacted by our irresponsible acts or failure to act for the common good. It's, it's not just about like, oh great, how can we all work together and ignore everything that's happened and pretend like <laughs> the systems aren't set up to benefit some people at the expense of others. Like, it's, it's really about taking a hard look and, and figuring out what needs to change, what needs to go away in order for us to create a future together with accountability for what's happened in the past and what's happening currently. Catalina Langan is a sorely needed catalyst, a beacon of hope. She's young and she's out to change the way we think. She's working to shift the paradigms in which we view success. How we evaluate companies or governments ranging from those of small cities and states up to and including national, even international governing bodies. She's working to spread the realization that the common good is the only sustainable path forward. The topic is complex. My conversation with Kat Langen was both thought-provoking and encouraging. Here's that conversation. Catalina Langen, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, would you rather we call you Catalina or Cat? Cat's good. That's how we know each other. That's <laughs> you. So, Cat's okay. good. There we go. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're a co-founder and program manager of an organization called Civic Wellbeing Partners. It's a fascinating name. Um, so what is Civic Wellbeing Partners' mission? Yeah, we are a pretty recent startup organization, and our mission is really to advance well-being as a framework for organizing government organizations, and we're really connected to people and do a lot of community engagement work. So our, our mission is really around using this well-being framework as a way of really improving outcomes for people. Mm-hmm. So 
You previously led community engagement for the City of Santa Monica's Office of Civic Wellbeing. Well, I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, such an <laughs> office ever within a U.S. city. Is that type of program unique to Santa Monica? Yeah, the Office of Civic Wellbeing was the first of its kind in the United States, as far as I'm aware. And really, the inspiration came from this global movement around well-being, which is really where a lot of the leadership is currently in the United States. You know, we have had this Office of Well-Being with the city of Santa Monica, and there's a lot of other sort of nascent efforts popping up across the country, but it's pretty disjointed right now. And so, yeah, this office was really the at the vanguard, I'd say, of this movement. You direct a well-being micro-grants program. Who does that program serve? Right now, it's pretty focused on the Santa Monica area because that's where this work grew out of, right, was this Office of Civic mm-hmm. Well-Being um, in Santa Monica. So that micro-grants program currently serves Santa Monica, West L.A. residents, and the goal of that program is to encourage individuals, regular people who see a need in their community to take action in a short-term, sort of small-scale way to really sort of kind of bring their own approaches to what what well-being looks like to them. And so our goal through that program is to support people, give them access to contacts locally, to different organizations, to help them with additional fundraising. And really, it's been a beautiful program. We've had five rounds up to this point, 47 projects that have been completed with just some amazing leaders. There's some people who I would say have never put on a program in their life or ran a class or something Mm -hmm. like that. And other people who are well-versed in in running programming um, or, you know, volunteering in their community. So it's a very wide range. We, we try to make it accessible to really anyone who wants to apply. We've had all sorts of ages from middle school to seniors. It's really just about putting out a call. Often we connect it back to our well-being data. So if, we, if there's findings in a particular neighborhood that, for example, say, we have findings that say a neighborhood is experiencing lower rates of community connectedness or civic engagement compared to another neighborhood. We'll put out a prompt that's specific around how would you help your neighbors be more connected? And so people's ideas and creativity around that really get to shine through this program. Is there any one of those that's happened that's kind of your favorite? I don't want to pick favorites, but. Let me think. Recently, there was a campaign for fundraising for frontline workers. So mm-hmm. individuals who ran that program had personal connections to other frontline workers and really saw this need because of the pandemic and how just challenging the day-to-day lives of people in grocery stores, the, the back-of-the-house folks um, at restaurants and they they also had a focus on like delivery drivers and they really wanted to sort of give people a spa day 
that was a more <laughs> that was a more targeted intervention but really the idea was around not just like the wellness components of a spa day but really about how do you how do we care for one another in difficult times and really thank one another for the way that people have stepped up in the last year and a half and so in addition to providing the spa treatment they also provided funds for transportation and childcare for those workers during so that they can actually take the time to go get that spa treatment that's beautiful so were you inspired and guided in any way by the concept instituted in the country of Bhutan that it's I think the process or the, or the policy is that gross domestic happiness is more important than gross domestic product. Did that inspire and influence this program? Definitely. Bhutan is one of these amazing international leaders in this space. They call it happiness there, but I think the framework really applies and inspired our well-being framework. So, yeah, so with Gross national happiness is really interesting because they they're not joking around <laughs> like when they talk about measuring and creating policies that generate happiness for their residents they have pretty strict guidelines as to what policies need to meet in terms of how they can measure outcomes of happiness for their residents in order to even become a policy so at hmm. the national level they have <laughs> people they say people fear their office of uh, national happiness because that you have to really meet a high standard in order to get your policy passed and i think that's really powerful and sort of flips the the script of i think this this movement of well-being in the US because we're so we're such an individualistic society and we're not really conditioned to think about the ways that we're so interconnected to other people and so while i i think there's something to be said for the last year and a half and how we've really realized that we actually are so interconnected and how much we depend on each other i think places like bhutan where that more collective mindset is ingrained in how people think about um their relationship to each other their relationship to the natural environment that that really enabled Bhutan to implement this national level policy. And I think there's also an understanding that's growing that GDP alone isn't really a great measure of how a country is doing. That's at the international level. Of course, my work is really taking it down to the local level and really understanding what does that look like sort of on the ground. in relationship with community members and how do we define it for ourselves because while gross national happiness has a lot of these universal components like relationship to the environment civic engagement the whole really beautiful framework of different elements that make up what they call happiness <laughs> i think what we think from the civic wellbeing partners perspective is that it really in the US is going to need to come from grassroots contexts because what we measure is different in different areas and what we care about differs uh in different parts of 
the country. And so I think where we've seen a lot of success and interesting things coming in the well-being space has been in these like local initiatives. Sure. So it's essentially based on local need and local values? Yeah. 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 So the gross domestic happiness concept seems to imply that sustainable development should take a holistic approach toward the notions of progress and give equal importance to non-economic aspects of well-being. So inspired by your work, I was inspired to, uh, to look deeper into that. And what I learned was that in 2011, the UN Assembly General passed a resolution titled Happiness Towards a Holistic Approach to Development, which urges member nations to follow the example of Bhutan, measure happiness and well-being, and the UN resolution calls happiness a fundamental human goal, which of course, sounds remarkably similar to a certain phrase from the Declaration of Independence. So, but how do you measure it? How do you how do you measure well-being, or how do you? What are the metrics of happiness? That's, yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, and I think this measurement piece, which is so central to, I think, the success of the movement here in the U.S is really being researched by well-known organizations that are doing other types of research as well. So for our well-being index that, that was developed through the city of Santa Monica, our Office of Civic Wellbeing partnered with RAND Corporation, mm-hmm. who do a, a ton of different um, <laughs> research projects. And are are well known in that space and we partnered with them on the development of this framework. So there's different measures that we incorporated into the index which was really developed to be sort of local specific. So we took subjective well-being measurement which is what I think is is sort of the <laughs> the staples of what what you think of when you think of how do you measure well-being so things around subjective well-being are for example access to economic opportunity do mm-hmm. you feel like you know would you have $500 in a, in case of an emergency like a question around just financial security other subjective well-being measures are you know, on a on looking at like a <laughs> rings on a ladder, how would you say that your life, you feel your life is overall on a scale from one to ten? Where on the ladder do you find yourself lying? That that question in particular is like a very universally used question in mm-hmm. in subjective well being measurement. And then other measures, for example, connection to your community. Do you feel like when you're walking around your neighborhood? Someone will wave at you and smile. Do you know your neighbors well enough that you feel you could comfortably exchange a favor with them? Do you, you know, do you feel connected to your community? Do you feel like you have an impact on local government? That was a question that we had in there. And there's really interesting responses that you get from from folks. We worked in a neighborhood while I was at the city where they were you know, experiencing higher, compared to this, 
city overall. There was higher levels of people saying they didn't feel like they could influence city government. So really mm-hmm. not feeling, even though they were strong in volunteerism, really felt like they voted and, and were civically engaged in other ways. They didn't feel like they had access to city hall. And so we spent a lot of time in that neighborhood. And by the time, the next time, two years later, we did the well-being index, we actually saw that neighborhood's sense of influencing government go up. So we can take, the, I think the idea is <laughs> if you're working in city government, it helps you to understand what are the sort of specific interventions you can take that will measurably improve well-being in a neighborhood. And the correlation even on a subjective level. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. And a lot of those measures, even though it is subjective well-being, that's quantitative measurement. So we're we're putting numbers <laughs> to those feelings or, you know, things that feel like they're maybe difficult to measure. We know that we can measure those numerically. I also, I think I got down a little bit of a tangent when I was talking about subjective well-being. That's one sort of area that we measure for the well-being index. What we also did was we paired it up with existing city hall data as it was being collected. So like tree coverage um, was is something that Santa Monica measures a lot of environmental outputs and outcomes. And so we paired it with data from the Office of Sustainability, from the city clerk's office, how many interactions that the planners had, and sort of layering it in with these regular sort of more transactional types of data in order to create a fuller picture of the community and what we can be really doing to to take action to, to improve well-being, essentially, in a really comprehensive way. Mm-hmm. And an integrating way. I think that's the important part of that is that that was specific to Santa Monica. And so when we're thinking about what could a well-being index look like in other places, it really is specific to the data that they're already collecting. Are those programs in Santa Monica getting any pushback? Which which programs? The well-being? Oh, the well-being programs, yes. Well, it's it's funny that you say that because that's really an important part of our story, I would say. Um, we, you know, our office was formed in 2017 after years of sort of building from youth well-being, which was really where this work started, was out of a couple of different crises in the community rallied people together to say, you know, we're Santa Monica, we have all of these resources, and yet our outcomes for our youth are not not where we'd like them to be. Given that we have all the resources, why isn't, you know, something isn't working. Um, and so youth well-being was really what created our office, which then measured, well, it, it led to the development of this index, which then our office was formed around. And that was in 2017 we started. Then by 2019, we had a major summit in Santa Monica that we hosted, the Wellbeing Summit, um, November 2019. And it was a big success. We had over 900 people come out. Folks from Bhutan were represented. Really? International people came. Yeah, it was, it was a really amazing day. We did a lot of programming for just the community to come in. All sorts of people came. It was a free event. And then 
you know, that's November 2019. Fast yeah. forward, COVID, COVID hits in March of 2020. And subsequently the city of santa monica's revenues just dropped right so because of that we our office was swept up in a major round of cuts to staffing programming (laughs) you know all, all sorts of things that the city just simply didn't have the funds to do anymore and so that's what drove me and my partner, Julie, who was the former chief of civic well-being for the city of Santa Monica. The two of us went off and founded Civic Wellbeing Partners because we feel it's very important that this work keeps going. And we did get the blessing of the city to sort of take the materials that, that our office created and <laughs> worked for and turn them into an non-governmental organization. And so right now, how we're set up is that there's a nonprofit called the Santa Monica Bay Human Relations Council, Mm -hmm. and they stepped up amazingly during that, that difficult time in 2020. And they said, we want civic well-being, you know, we want to own this now. And so we're, they're our fiscal receiver. And so that's sort of how we are getting set up and still really figuring out what it is that the future holds. So it sounds like you brought the the link between the city and th- that other program that you mentioned, that organization, that nonprofit, um, sounds like it was independent and not in any way related to, to the city. Correct. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we're, we're no longer a part of the city with this work. But it was the city's investment and an interest in this work and that I think, it, I mean, it wouldn't be possible to be where we are without what they gave. I do think it's really unfortunate that we're not in City Hall in, in some regards. However, we've also been able to do a, a lot of work with national colleagues, people trying to do this um, in other places in a way that we we just didn't have the time for when we were city staff. Yeah, when I asked you the question about whether there was any pushback, I must confess ignorance and perhaps a, a dash of prejudice uh, in that I always, when I thought of Santa Monica, I think of an affluent town that probably is very conservative. So, mm-hmm. again, you know, ignorance, perhaps a little you know, generalization, but it would seem surprising to me that of all places, Santa Monica would be the place to embrace this kind of a program mm. and launch it. Well, I, I think as part of that stereotype, uh, yes, in some ways, re- like Santa Monica has a lot of resources. There's definitely, like the, the city has set out historically to do a lot of robust programming for the community as well the community is very liberal like just generally there's sort of a almost the the pushback that I would say in terms of content um has been that Santa Monica is seen as sort of a hippy dippy type place (laughs) uh yoga mats and lattes as Julie (laughs) will say um and that and so when you talk about well-being or happiness and it's, oh, it's for these people with their, you know, Lululemon yoga pants, <laughs> like, 
that that's the stereotype that I think we've had to struggle with like in terms of early coverage I think there was misconception around like what it meant like oh well-beings for these fancy people over here but I but I think the way that we've gone about our work has really been quite the opposite there's definitely a big divide in Santa Monica. There's the the sort of projected image of Santa Monica and there are some neighborhoods that, you know, subcultures that definitely live up to those stereotypes. I would say there's also a lot of people who are just trying to make it through who sure. um, either lived, you know, their families, sort of similar to here in Carlsbad, their, you know, their families are from here. They want to stay here. Actually, a lot of that has led us to our office was the center for the racial equity work in Santa Monica. There's just a whole a whole history in Santa Monica of the the story of really racism and racist policies that characterized what Santa Monica looks like today. And so a lot of our work has been trying to figure out how to support people who haven't had the access to resources and haven't experienced the the boom of the downtown area in the same way that, you know, people with a lot of capital have been able to to really benefit from the So tourism. it sounds like a major component of the program had to be education, PR, and basically letting the community know that funds expended are being done responsibly and, and with good outcomes. Yeah, and and a lot of the funding for the work came from a grant from Bloomberg Philanthropies. Mm. So they have a mayor's challenge, and Santa Monica won the mayor's challenge, and that was really what what enabled the index to kick off. And so the whole the whole idea behind that funding source was that we would then develop. It would be putting an investment into Santa Monica to develop resources that could then be spread and used in other places. And I think one of the beautiful things about us moving into this non-governmental space is that we've been able to really share those resources in a lot broader of a way. And we're being given like different opportunities to to make good use of these resources in other places. And when I talk about these resources, I mean, we developed, again, in partnership with RAND, our well-being survey, which we have open source and we share with other communities. We have case studies and, you know, evidence of practice of what we've done that we share with other communities. So there are a lot of resources for people in other places that are trying to get this stuff off the ground in their own communities that came from Santa Monica getting this grant. That's, as I listen to you, I think of how the news gets out. And typically the news, what what sells or what gets clicks, likes, or whatever, or shares is bad news. But mm. it sounds like the message here is largely that there's a message of good news that needs to get out as well. And I'm finding myself wondering if if there's a split in the way the media deals with the stories that this program and this this office creates about whether they actually get out, those stories get out. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think part of 
part of the communications challenge, I guess, that's been identified in this space is that it's a big concept. And I, I think there's a challenge with trying to both talk about like the content of what it is and also what we really mean, like what is really meant by getting to well-being. You know, I think a lot of major <laughs> shifts would happen, have to happen in our priorities, in the way that we work across different organizations and systems in order for people to actually, like in all people with, you know, applying a racial, racial equity lens to it, really for all people to be well. And, and I really see well-being as being about a, a lot of different things, right? And, and so it's as much about like how we work and how we implement policies. Is it, you know, top down? Is it in partnership with community? That would need to shift for these outcomes to shift. So, so it can be hard to, for even someone trying to cover it to, mm-hmm. to <laughs> even if they have the best in, intentions to get it because it's something that I'm still figuring out after a few years of, of working in it because it, yeah, it's, it's so much about the, the mindsets that leaders need as well as just the, the way that you go about doing things that I think is different from just the traditional <laughs> mechanisms sure. of a lot of businesses, organizations, governments. Well, in a world where competition seems to rule the roost, this isn't, this isn't exactly uh, in sync with the competition model. It seems exactly. like part of the thing is, is to even understand what this represents and, and what it implies and why it's important. Yeah. You, uh, you wrote and recently uh, were awarded a $500,000 grant, weren't you? Yes, we were. So what organization funded that one? Tell, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, this is really exciting. This is brand new. Um, and we were funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, mm. which is the largest public health organization in the U.S. And essentially, they they are really trying to understand what the system looks like for well-being initiatives across the U.S. and a- across the world, and how how are we learning from these lessons from places like Bhutan and New Zealand, who we haven't even talked about New Zealand yet, but they have a well-being budget at the national level for their government. And so, how are the these bottom-up initiatives across the U.S. Where are they? What are their goals? Who is really leading them? And then how are they learning from these global leaders in well-being? And so what we're doing for Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is that we're trying to understand that system. And we're also trying to understand what I referenced before. What are the leadership skills, mindsets, and sort of attitudes that are needed to really advance complex work like this that's really about changing systems. So that's what Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is funding us to do, and they're also looking at this from a a number of different angles to really understand what's needed and where resources should be put in the future. 
So it sounds almost academic. Yes. Two members of our team are uh, from the sort of university academic side of this work, although they have connections across businesses and nonprofits as well. And then Julie and I, for through Civic Wellbeing Partners, we, I keep referencing Julie, this is Julie Rusk, who was the, the former chief of civic well-being um, at the city of Santa Monica, who I work with. She and I sort of bring that city government connections and lens, and our, our team members bring more the university academic research <laughs> perspective. So it, it is academic, and we really hope that the outcomes of this are shared in like widely available and accessible materials so that they can be used and spread and that the learnings can be really engaging. This is bringing to mind for me, um, have you ever read a book called Sapiens? No, I haven't. Sapiens. I can picture the cover. <laughs> yeah, Yuval Noah Harari is the author. It's a book of, the, it's essentially the human history or the history of humanity. And one of the takeaways I got from the book was that what made humanity, the, the Homo sapiens, successful, even though at one point in time apparently there were six different species of, hum, of sapien or Homo, uh, whatever, the, of human <laughs> species. <laughs> I can talk. <laughs> but at any rate, what, one of the things they said was, was successful or that ensured the success was the ability of the group, uh, large groups, to work together. Mm. In other words, it wasn't just a whole, you know, had it been stayed tribal and all uh, in large measure, wouldn't have worked. And the tribes ended up forming nations and the nations formed empires mm. and empires are what advanced a lot of it, that sort of thing. Um, I guess this is more a commentary, but... Um, it kind of strikes me that nowadays with the, the whole thing about America first or the uh, immigration crisis or, you know, people that it's hard to find optimism for me. How about you? Are you op an optimist? Yes, I, I do think I'm an optimist at my core. But it's been it's been hard this last year and a half, I guess, in some ways, and and beyond before that. I mean, before I really got into the civic well-being work, I worked for Cal State San Marcos in their community engagement division, and I I did civic engagement programming for students, and back then that was that was 2017, and it was a really challenging time. In terms of the discourse on campus, there were, you know, hate groups posting flyers on campus. Uh, uh, it was just a, a really difficult time, and I, I haven't been really as connected to campus since since leaving working there. But I just know that for the the discourse on campus is really challenging. And when I worked doing civic engagement programming, and and we had a dialogue series about talking about democracy uh -huh, <laughs> and really uh -huh. how how are the lovers of democracy working or not working um, and we had faculty come in and talk about their perspectives on that and 
yeah, so it, it does feel like because we're getting more polarized, it can be challenging to talk about really anything without it becoming immediately politicized. And so I think when it ties back, tying that back to this work, I think because it is about the collective, it's about everybody. You know, we we do really all need <laughs> need well-being. I mean, this is this is really fundamental. And so, yeah, I mean, even though there's a lot that is definitely <laughs> makes me want to pull my hair out or or feel <laughs> less than optimistic on certain days, I do think and I'm connected to so many people who are trying regardless. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, I I see connections in the climate justice movement where, and this work is so, so intimately related to that work. And I think it's just, uh, what what is it? There's a new book, I believe, called All We Can Save. Mm. And I wish I knew the authors off the top of my head. I think really this idea of focusing on what we can do and really working with people who are like-minded, that has been really, really great for me. I, you know, without, of course, closing off to different perspectives, it's not about, you know, forming an echo chamber, but it is about working with people who really want to make a positive difference. Because I've, I've tried to work with people who aren't interested in doing things differently or for whatever reason, and it just makes it harder. And so when you find the people who have these, these mindsets and are interested in changing things for, for the positive, I think that's where I, yeah, where I really find hope. I, I also want to go back to the, the well-being microgrants program. <laughs> I only shared one of those, those uh, projects, but man, like watching people just as individuals step up and use their own creativity and skills to better their community is like the the best thing for me. Yeah. So I would say volunteering, getting involved, doing things that that will get you more connected locally is I've just seen it transform people's literal lives. So I bet. yeah. I mean, it seems as though, you know, the the old standard human psychology mode or model is that we're ruled either by carrots or sticks. And you're describing carrots, people who go out and do something and get acknowledged and rewarded and, and see the fruits of their labor, as opposed to people that are afraid and just fighting fear. Um, sounds beautiful. That That is something that... Matter of fact, it seems like um, I'm noticing, say, with regard to COVID, for instance, mm-hmm. that um, you know a lot of the resistance to vaccines and even such things as masks is falling away as things like this or take a, have a personal impact on people. Mm-hmm. So it seems as though that's that falls under the stick category, but somewhere but in the middle, there there I hope is is something that's going to transform us all. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Education. What was your education? 
Oh, well, we're, it's so funny. We're recording in a, in a studio that's across the street from my elementary school. <laughs> um, I, I went through uh, all the Carlsbad schools. I just put that together <laughs> right now. But yeah, but my, my parents' house is around the corner. And um, yeah, I went to Carlsbad High School. I was really involved in the choir program there. Sound Express was, was so important to my high school experience. And then for university, I went to University of California, Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. and I double majored in history and Spanish, and I continued singing in college. I participated in an acapella group, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and that was really great. Yeah, I also got to uh, study abroad. I studied in Madrid um, for a semester, and in thinking about just sort of how my education brought me to where I am with this civic well-being work. I mean, I, I did, I don't know, I think, I think this, the education that I got around history really did help me see some of the movements yes. and trends over time and sort of how that, how things build so that was really valuable. I also took a course all around reparations. And I think that that influenced my perspective a lot about when harm is done to communities, what really do reparations look like in general across atrocities sure. and really who is responsible and like what's, what accountability looks like. And I think that's really important in this work because it's it's not just about like oh great how can we all work together and ignore everything that's happened and pretend like <laughs> the systems aren't set up to benefit some people at the expense of others like it's it's really about taking a hard look and and figuring out what needs to change what needs to go away in order for us to create a future together with accountability for what's happened in the past and what's happening currently. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think there's any anything to the notion that part of what um, the fear in our society today is rooted on a kind of a fear that the pendulum swings and that when it swings, it swings to the extremes rather than in the middle? In other words, people thinking that if such things as reparations occur, that somehow that's going to destroy their way of life? Yeah, I know that there's so much fear around even opening up the conversation about, like, if you're talking about reparations for, you know, American slavery or something like, like, that's the big, I think, conversation right now. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that definitely because we have such a fear-based political conversation right now that people will pick up talking points if if there's, you know, someone on the news saying that means something's going to get taken away from you. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I think more important than that is making things right with sure. communities that have been harmed. So, Influences in your life. What, what, what people and what things and what, what, what influenced you? Well, you know, I brought up... Um, well, the, the first thing that I think of is 
my dad. <laughs> um, I've I've listened I listened to your podcast. I know some other people have said <laughs> said that sort of a thing, but you know I think I you know my dad well, and he's just the the kindest person that I know, and so I I try to uh, be like him, and I know my mom has influenced me a lot too, because <laughs> whenever when I was little, uh, she was working at the San Diego Zoo as a bird keeper, and I would always say, I want to be a bird keeper, <laughs> and I think it was because I picked up on how passionate she was even when I was little, and so I know I know from from her that I. I follow things that I'm interested in and I, you know, I care about being passionate about my work. As well, I think growing up with music around me has helped me to be creative and think about things differently. I did a lot of like vocal arrangements when I was uh, both in high school choir and at college choir and I think Picking up different pieces and putting them together in interesting ways is something that I find really interesting, and I do see it translating to this work because it is so much about finding things that work and <laughs> running with them. So, well, yours is without question the most musical family I've ever even <laughs> dreamed of. I'm so so lucky and thankful for that. Yeah. You know what's interesting is that it, at this very moment. It, it occurred to me perhaps for the first time that part of the, what that gave you all was a bond because singing harmony draws you together. You know, like you hear about groups that splinter because of egos or whatever, you know, because somebody wants to dominate. But successful groups, successful music is harmony and is togetherness. Totally. Yeah. And it takes a lot of coordination too and just like practice and vulnerability and working with each other so yeah yeah did you have mentors along the way absolutely it's it's interesting it's an interesting question because I really feel like one of my biggest mentors is who I'm working with right now I'm working mm -hmm. with Julie Russ and she's just got such an amazing passion for this work and really gets it and has been working with people for so long and just I feel like I'm learning something from her every time we meet <laughs> we meet like several times a week so I just I, I know I've brought her up a lot but she really is a she's the reason that I'm doing this work and she's the reason that it exists at all in in its current form so yeah I, I'm I think yeah she's helped me to see the way that things are connected in a way that like I didn't I didn't understand going into my work with civic well-being I I came in to do community engagement for the project mm -hmm. and working with people and that was what I was familiar with was running volunteer programs and doing you know civic engagement type work with students. And I, I think through the experience of working with her, I've, I've just gotten the opportunity to really broaden my thinking, both in terms of how things are connected, like I said, 
in local systems, but also around the world. Like how how do these you know international movements happen? And like really, what interrogating what's going on in the moment? So. So you've had a chance to study New Zealand. As you may know, Martin is deeply connected to New Zealand. Yes. <laughs> so what, what, what is it about New Zealand? How have you, what have you learned and how? Well, so there, uh, Jacinda Ardern brought this concept of well, well-being in her administration into their national budgeting process. So similarly to Gross National Happiness, who were sort of the first model of this, they have taken this framework of outcomes of well-being for all people in their country and have implemented it into their budgeting processes. So I think that's still, I, I'm not sure exactly how many years that's been going on, but I know it's still like a growing mm-hmm. a piece of her her leadership, but I think one thing I will say about leadership in this space is it is a lot of women. A lot of women are really rethinking these economic systems, and I think it really takes women's leadership to to help with including more people in the success that we've seen of our economies. So, well said. I think I think there's something to that, even if you think of it from almost a pure biological standpoint. Males, you know, humans are a great ape. We're a species of great ape, whether we like to admit it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but there's kind of an interesting thing about males, that the, the competition between males. Th- this struck me one time when I was at a party, and we were playing, um, you know. Oh, like the, cricket? Cricket. No, 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 no. It, it's whatever. It's, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> once again. Probably the steak. It's you got a little ball croquet, yeah. croquet. croquet. <laughs> there we go. It was close to cricket. You almost had me there. <laughs> but I noticed that when the guys would play croquet, we were very competitive. And you know, like when when one of the other guys gets up to hit the ball, we'd go gutter ball or whatever. You know, just wish them <laughs> ill. Whereas the women were just so supportive of one another and wanted each other to succeed. <laughs> But guys are so competitive, and it's just, it's like a biological trend, which is makes a real, real case for a much stronger female influence in our world. Hmm. Well, I mean, the current economic system, which is based almost entirely around competition, uh, was built by men. So, I mean, it, it just... With the the women economists that I've talked to who are really trying to rethink things, I, I just find them very inspiring. There's a lot of new economics principles and ways of thinking and models that that really serve more people. And I think that's where we need to get when it comes to the, the economic side of all of this. We need a lot of change in a lot of areas, but yeah. the economic stuff is is really critical. You when did you graduate from college? 2015. Wow. This is so beautiful. I'm loving this. I mean, it's <laughs> not very often do I get an opportunity to have a really intergenerational conversation. And so thank you for this. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So as you look at how your life has progressed and what what where you've gotten to 
what worked along the way? What what was it? What can you identify mm. any things that that kind of propelled you forward? Specifics. What worked? I. I think I'm going to ask you another question. Oh, okay. Maybe that'll help. Okay. Because I'm also going to ask you what didn't work. Okay. <laughs> so you can take those in any order you wish. Or oh. You... Okay. Well, I mean, I think. I've I've always um, been uh, like a <laughs> like in school I was a mega nerd I was I was such a nerd about school I I um, you know really wanted to just do the best that I possibly could some of that was <laughs> just uh, I I really liked the uh, tangential reward or the tangible that's the that's the right word i can speak to um, <laughs> <laughs> the tangible reward of like yes grades you know and so i think that that you know keeping my i don't know my motivation around that was really important to me also just diving really deep with being involved in in choirs has always been really great for me i think it it helped me with a lot of leadership skills that I, at the time, that wasn't what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to develop leadership skills. I was just trying to, like, create cool things with people that I really liked. And that ended up serving me really well. Also, I signed up for a bunch of things in college that at the time I was just like, why am I, why am I doing this sometimes? Like, I, I chaired a foundation for um, that gave grants to volunteer organizations and so I got connected with some of the volunteer groups in Santa Barbara and I loved the connecting with people part and I loved that I got to look over people's applications and fund volunteer projects but what I didn't love about it as much was all the admin and the sure th the processing <laughs> receipts and like that sort of thing I was like you know, I get a stipend for this, but I'm not really getting paid. And like, why is this worth my time in college when I was so busy? But that's really what got me my first job. Like the fact that I had run a grants program at my university was what got me. I, I think when I, when I talked to the person who interviewed me at Cal State San Marcos, that was the thing that sort of set me apart. So I think the fact that I wanted to sign up for things and, and do things like that worked for me. And the same thing when I was at Cal State San Marcos, I was able to move into this civic engagement position out of a regular admin front desk position, which I learned a lot from, but mm -hmm. I wanted to be more in this content area. And so I think, yeah. And then in terms of what hasn't worked, it's, it's harder. <laughs> I'm trying to think well, everybody seems to along the live, uh, along the the path, uh, seems to run into things where they did a blooper or they did something that that really kind of they go, oops, that not not so good that one. So yeah. Matter of fact, the last person that we interviewed was talking about that she worked with Malcolm Forbes, and she was talking about Malcolm Forbes said something to the effect that. 75% of the endeavors or something like this that he engaged in 
were spectacular failures. Mm. But without those failures, he wouldn't have succeeded the 25% that made him ultimately successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, certainly it's true that, you know, I've started up now two positions at organizations. I was the first person to be in them. And now both of those positions no longer exist. <laughs> so, so that uh, clearly isn't great for sustainability of this of either the civic engagement programming I was doing or the civic well-being stuff. But you know, I think that speaks to like what happens in organizations when maybe you know maybe someone leaves and there isn't a plan for, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm well, that not. sounds like also priorities. I mean, because you mentioned that part of what happened with the program in Santa Monica was COVID. Yeah, that was huge. So when, when people start looking at kind of a fiscal triage, they're looking at what's got to get saved and what, what can get jettisoned. Yeah. And clearly the values, you know, that, that drove the city to start this mm-hmm. didn't have it at the top of the stack. Yeah, I think another another thing that in some ways that didn't work for me was a lot of times or like in in both of those settings at Cal State San Marcos and at the city of Santa Monica, I sort of went into it wanting to learn but having a hard time off the bat advocating for the things that I thought were important. Mm. So I'd say, you know, often, especially more so because I was earlier in my career at Cal State San Marcos, I really felt like the people around me, you know, had been there for longer, were more experienced with even just being in an office setting. And so sometimes in different spaces, I've just sort of deferred to other people rather than advocating. And I think... That has that has led me to be disappointed in about you know things not happening or maybe feeling like I missed opportunities and so that's been an that has historically been an issue for me. Now what I'll say is that <laughs> when I was in the office of civic well-being, I was so immensely supported by a team of women. <laughs> we were all women in that office, which is kind of interesting, and that gave me a lot more confidence to be in larger meetings and say what I felt and sort of speak up in a more organic way. And I learned a lot from, I guess, missed opportunities is sort of what I can think of. of yeah, when I when I didn't feel like I had the confidence or the, I don't know, but like experience to, to speak up. And I think a lot of women earlier in their careers, I'm sure, feel the same way. Well, it sounds like part of what you learned from all that was to trust yourself. Yeah, I do more now. I I think in the work that we're doing now, because we're really trying to explore, you know, what is it that, what is it that I'm focusing on? What, where do I want to develop my skills? And so I, I think, yeah, I, I try and take more action to just, Mm-hmm. do the things that I want to do and not be so as wrapped up in whether it's the exact right path or 
if I'm, you know, the one who should be doing it or it's, right. it's like, here I am. <laughs> so I might as well make the most of it, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. By the way, how did you get the job at Santa Monica? Well, I interviewed, so <laughs> I was moving to Los Angeles because my partner Nick got a job in downtown LA and I interviewed and it was actually so funny because this was, you know, pre-COVID, pre-whatever, arcane city practices where you had to come <laughs> in in person to interview. And I was I was in San Diego with my parents. And for whatever reason, I couldn't make it that day. So I did a phone interview instead of an in-person interview. And I was like, there's no way they're going to give it to me because you know, it just doesn't, it's not the same as if every other candidate's in person. And I ended up being interviewed by a woman who worked at the, at Santa Monica College. She was on my interview panel and we just had this great connection. And the focus of the position, because it was on community engagement, I thought it was so cool that they had a panel of people on these, (laughs) in these different organizations Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. were doing the hiring. And I think they liked my perspective on the well-being data that was up on the website and they liked that I was engaged with students and across different organizations at Cal State San Marcos in in that work and so yeah I went into it not really knowing too much about well-being as a topic or the fact that it was an international (laughs) movement and I was pretty much immediately on board because it just to me feels like a really important way that we should be moving and thinking mm-hmm. about how we how we live. So it was a job posting at first? And it was responded. a job posting, oh, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I just... No, you know, my thought on, on what t- tends to get people jobs in cities and colleges is knowing somebody and that the mm. job posting is almost irrelevant. Mm. Of course, that stems from my own, like... If I were to answer my own question about what didn't work, what didn't work was every application I ever made to a college or a city. Mm. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I submitted hundreds of applications that got me nowhere. All sorts of things that I'm (laughs) – that I look back at, you know, you think like – from from an interviewer's perspective, I was probably pretty qualified. But, um, (laughs) yeah. Both both the city of Santa Monica and Cal State San Marcos, I just applied and um, and interviewed, and then got the position. Yeah. So aspirations. What is the future? You have any any specific dreams for what you want? Yeah, I do. I do. I think this is going to be a big growth year for me professionally, and I. Yeah, I see a lot of opportunity to move in different directions. I think one area that I'm really interested in and want to understand better is the economic side of these of well-being and really understanding what a well-being economy would look like. I I don't think it's capitalism, um, but you know, just really understanding like where is the movement and kind of getting more involved and going deeper into into my understanding of of that that piece of this pie and also just getting connected to to more people um I'm working with a group of 
women economists who I referenced earlier, and they're from all over the world. And I just think there's so much there that I really want to explore. And so that's what I'm hoping for. That's beautiful. You know, I, uh, I saw a quote from Yuval Noah Harari of Sapiens. Uh, he, this is what he said. This is a historical perspective on humanity. It's kind of a summation. We've mastered our surroundings, increased food production, built cities, established empires, and created far-flung trade networks. But did we decrease the amount of suffering in the world? That question is just so powerful, and, and I must confess that up until we had our first conversation on this subject, I was beginning to become quite the cynic. So I want to thank you for giving me hope and uh, in some sense that we're going places, and I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you. Thank you, Dan. I, I'm really glad that, yeah, we had this conversation. I, I appreciate your perspective and bringing in that sort of long view. A lot of this is about, like, what is it that we owe each other at the end of the day? How, how should we live in society? Uh, and so, so I appreciate the chance to reflect on that. There's power in questions, and Kat asks some critical questions. What is it that we owe each other at the end of the day? How should we live in society? These questions shine a light on the partisan rancor so prevalent today. These questions call to mind an old African saying that goes, you should take no comfort from the fact that my half of the boat is sinking. Spoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversaire studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung. <laughs>